Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 10:50 a.m., 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California, and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. And a pleasant afternoon to everybody, and I hope everybody's having a good time at the uh, at your radio station and uh, at your homes or in your cars and listening to the uh, the Water Zone. I'm Rob Starr, along with Mr. Chris Davey, and we are the hosts of the show. And before we start, I did I do want to just pass a message to our listeners and uh, friends and, and and people that uh, that I personally know. Um, I know I was gone uh, a week ago. We had a uh, uh, sudden death in our family. It was our oldest son. And I wanted to thank everybody who sent email messages and emails and, and cards and, and flowers and things. And um, it's heartfelt from Pam and I, and uh, we thank you so much for uh, for your kindness and your kind words. And I just wanted to take the beginning of this show to thank everybody. And uh, we sincerely appreciate your love and, and uh, you, you doing what you did for us. So appreciate that. Anyway, Mr. Davey, how are you doing today? Doing great, Robert, and it's great to have you back on the other end of the uh, mic. We we took care of business last week uh, without your stead there. Don't worry about that at all. Everything went uh, went great. Um, you know, just a great outpouring from from people that uh, that we know and do listen to the show. And I uh, I just hope that it brought you some you and Pam a little comfort. It did. It, it helped, and we're still going through our time, but uh, we'll we know it'll it'll get better. And uh, so we thank you for all of that, and thanks to you and and, and Chris and everybody for helping, uh, and everybody at work. Uh, I do I do sincerely appreciate that. So, anyway, uh, we want to bring on uh, Miss Chris Austin, who is the Maven of Maven's Notebook. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you all doing? Great. Doing good. Good. So, good. What, Lots of stuff happening that we I read every day in your thing, and uh, I have some topics, but I'll let you choose the one that you think is uh, uh, the most notable. You can well, start off. well, there's all sorts of things that are notable, but but this is an interesting thing that's gone on since the since the elections were held. You know, there's a um, an irrigation district in the valley. It's one of the largest in the in the nation. It's called Westlands Water District. And they came about in about the 1960s when they built San Luis Reservoir. And John F. Kennedy actually came out for the groundbreaking and hit the dynamite, the dynamite, that's the blast that started the building of the dam. So... Really, in terms of uh, California water, they they are like have what we would call junior rights uh, to just about everybody else. They're one of the last uh, people on the or last irrigation districts on the system, and they've for decades they've been. I used to describe them as the Oakland sort of like the Oakland Raiders of the water world. You know they. <laughs> they didn't always seem like they played fair. They do something. Can they do that? You know, they had uh, they had all all sorts of of uh, characters in there, and they were very combative, and um, and not uh, they just didn't have a really a, a great uh, 
a great a reputation uh, with a lot of people in, in other people in the San Joaquin Valley. They weren't known for being easy to work with, um, if they would work with you at all. Well, they had an election, and I think this has been brewing for a while. You know, there's a lot of younger farmers in the district, and they didn't like the uh, the rough and tough Westlands image. And so, actually, a number of these new people ran for the board of directors, and they were elected in uh, in the after the election. Uh, the, these newcomers to the board. And uh, it it signals a big change for the Westlands board, so much that their longtime general manager, Tom Burningham, decided to uh, retire <laughs> because they, they these farmers that are in control now want want to do uh, you know want to be a, a nicer, uh, more collaborative uh, water district uh, in the San Joaquin Valley and. I think it's 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 going to be really interesting to see. People are going to have to, you know. I think there's a lot of people saying, "Well, you know, we'll we'll believe that when we see it." Uh, but I do, you know. I I've actually had some communication with some of the people on the new board of directors, and they they're really very sincere. You know, we want to instead of being combative, we want to be collaborative. We want to work with our neighbors. We want to work with the disadvantaged communities in, that are within our district. So it's going to be really interesting to see um, how this changes things in the San Joaquin Valley. I do think it signals um, sort of this new era that we have been working towards in California water, where it's really about being collaborative now. It's really about sitting down with people and trying to work out something that works for everybody. But, you know, people can't get everything they want. So, you know, that's sort of where we're at. And so being collaborative and being willing to work with others and, and you know, it's, it's, it's sort of the new way where we're headed with California water and Westlands converting into this, you know, kinder, gentler, a large irrigation district is going to be interesting to watch to see how it changes dynamics in the San Joaquin Valley. So. What, what about the thoughts of a lot of water districts and, and things who want to go back and, and renegotiate water rights throughout California? Is that, that going to play a big part with, with all these agencies? Well, you know, there's a lot of people been talking about changing water rights for a long time, and it's 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 not that easy to do, um, but I think you know, talking in the large in a large global sense, I think yeah, at some point we're going to have to you know change. We're going to have to modify the water rights. There's a number of reasons for that. Uh, for one thing, uh, when you have um, uh, a water right. You have to specify what season of the year that you're going to be diverting, and you have to specify how much you're going to be diverting. So, you know, you might have uh, generally your water rights are in the winter time when it's wet, or the spring when the snow melts coming, and you have the, a set of dates, and and these dates are all different. 
for all these different water rights all over the place. They're, they're, you know, not, none of them quite the same. And, um, and what we have with climate change is we have um, our, our precipitation patterns are shifting and our snow melt is running off now earlier in the year uh, rather than later. There isn't really a long snow melt if there's not much of a snowpack up there. And this is going to mean as these, uh, as the climate shifts these runoff patterns, there's going to be large groups of people that, you know, are going to go out to, to turn on their pumps at whatever time of the year they can, and there may not be any water there for them. It may have already come and gone. Uh, so, you know, so we are, we are, are going to have to do something about that. We're going to have to adjust things for climate change. I don't know how that's going to happen. Um, and I'll tell you the other thing. Um, when it comes to the Colorado River, I'm sure if anyone who pays any attention to water news knows that the Colorado River is in dire straits. And they, they've been told that they have to make a serious cutback of two to four million acre feet. So if, um, would, um, I guess that's, um, that's probably about 25% perhaps. I'm not, uh, that's rough math, uh, about 25% cut to what people are drawing out of the river. And that's, that's a significant amount of water. And California has 4.4 uh, uh, million acre feet of water rights from, uh, from the Colorado River. But the vast majority of that water, like 3 million acre feet, goes to the Imperial Valley in California um, and, and for, for agriculture. And we like the agriculture in the Imperial Valley. That's where all our wintertime salad vegetables come from. Uh, you know, it's a very highly productive agricultural place, but they have the vast majority of California's water rights um, on the Colorado River. Um, and so they have 4.4 million acre feet. And so far, California has only really offered up 400,000 acre feet. Um, now, we, the seven states need to to try to cut two to four million acre feet, and California, that's entitled to one fifth of the flow of the Colorado River, is only offering four hundred thousand acre feet. And a lot of the uh, Colorado River Basin states are saying that's not enough. And you know, I think that um, water rights like this. You know, the Imperial Valley's water rights are the, the oldest on the river. Uh, they're actually number three, but number one and two are very small amounts of water. And then there's the 3.1 million acre feet for the Imperial Valley that they claimed and have a right to from uh, turn of the century. 18, I think they were in the 1890s. They, they took their first draw in you know, uh, between up to 1905. So we're talking, you know, turn of 1900. That's when their uh, their water rights date to. And if if they're not going to offer up more water, I think that there's if things are really going to come to a head on the Colorado River. Because theoretically, 
with this first in time, first in right. Imperial Valley is the first in right. They have a, a fifth a fifth of the flow of the river. So if the flow of the river goes down to one-fifth of the flow it is now, then theoretically every other state will have to let that water pass and flow down to the Imperial Valley. That's more, you know, that's more water than any of the other states just going into the Imperial Valley. So I think something's going to have to change. They're, the people in the Imperial Valley um, hang on to their water. They they don't like to see it leave. And I, I have a feeling if they don't get more collaborative and figure out something, which is going to mean cutting back water, then I think they're going to have to come in and find a way to take it from them somehow because I can't see how they're going to be able to let water go to the Imperial Valley, but not to Arizona, Utah, you know, New Mexico, the upper basin states, you know. Um, so it's, got, I, it's, got, it's got to pass through them, so they'll, they'll stop the water before Imperial even gets it. <laughs> well, yeah, and then you have lawsuits. But, but there, well, there's that phrase, I love that phrase, what it is, better to be upstream with a shovel than downstream with a decree. Yeah. But... <laughs> But, you know, yeah, theoretically, well, well, you know, there's a lot of people saying that this situation is pretty dire on the Colorado River. And, um, you know, even some articles saying that they think it might get ugly. Um, it's, you know, it's hard times there on the Colorado River. So, yeah, I do think water rights are going to have to change. Um, I don't think we can really expect these constructs of the early, you know, the late 1800s and early 1900s are not really serving us in our 21st century world. Oh, that's true. You know, I just returned from Denver, and, and you know, it's really cold. It's like minus 11 today. Oh, yes. And, and going even lower. But, you know, storms, if we all watch the news, there's all kinds of storms brewing from Texas all the way up to, you know, the northeast. And there's going to be lots of precipitation, yet... We can't transfer any of that to here. You know, we, we, we had a gentleman on who was running for Arizona State Senate, or not State Senate, for U.S. Senate, and his name was Jim Lehman, and he, he wanted to bring, uh, uh, and we talked about it, I won't dwell on it, a pipeline from back east to out here. I see a lot of water, a lot of precipitation that's going to happen that we're not going to see and we're not going to be able to use, which is kind of a shame. Uh, I, I hope, you know, with all these money that they're putting in for infrastructure bills and things of like that, that somebody's planning to look at some of these things and, and really implement programs that help bring water out this way. Because if we don't, and, and you know, we're depleting groundwater and all kinds of other things. I mean, that's a scary, a scary thought. You um, know, they, they had a, a whole series of exchange of letters in the desert sun, which is the, um, the, uh, newspaper for the Coachella Valley. And, uh, yeah, you know, we talk about, hey, you know, let's go, let's go get that water. Why can't we have that water? Then they had people writing from Minnesota going, um, because we want that water and we don't want to send it to you. So we like to talk out here like, oh, they should send us that water. But, you know, the people that are over there by that water are not, not enthused with that idea. Um, I, I think, I really think we, we have to learn to live within our means, um, kind of like with the budget, we're going to have to figure out how to 
to live within our means for these water things. Um, you know, I think uh, the the time for these big, large basin the basin transfers is is kind of done. I think you know, especially with climate change. If people have a lot of water, they're probably less likely to want to send it away because they don't know what's going to happen. We send all our water away, then there's none for them. So, so you know, there's, lot, there's lots of depletion of groundwater that's going. It's really accelerating up in what uh, Central Valley. And oh yeah. So but, what, what, go ahead. But it, but then if you talk about groundwater depletion, like and you want all that water from the Mississippi River, well, I got to tell you the Ogallala Aquifer which underlies the Plains state, they're, they're just drawing that aquifer down to nothing. So the water that you would be shipping over here, they, I'm sure they would be like, hey, wait a minute, let's use that water for our aquifers. So if you start yeah, to, so. you Next know, step. this is kind of where we're, where we're headed, you know. We're, we're not, un- unfortunately, if you look at what how groundwater depletion is, um, the Central Valley is one spot. The Plain State from, I don't know, Iowa down to Texas, that's a huge spot there. It's also like all over the world, unfortunately. I think groundwater has just been abused in a sense. Um, you know, people have just used it unsustainably everywhere. It's easy to do. You can't see it. Right? It's, it, and And people had this this view that, you know, I can just sink a well, and if there's water, it's like, it's it's endless water. (laughs) You know, I'm entitled to all of it that I can pump up, but, you know, but it just doesn't work that way. And, you know, the other story I think you were starting to go in is like, you know, in the Central Valley, they're trying to implement this groundwater legislation, and uh, there are people that are uh, just uh, rebelling, in this, as they put it, um, you know they they don't want they don't want to do it. Um, they, you know, we have these uh, like Prop 218 rules for you know for for levying new charges in water districts, and so they they vote down the the fees associated with the groundwater uh, pumping. Uh, <laughs> they're just uh, they don't want to pay the fees, uh, and you know, it, and it's it's really hard because um, in the Central Valley there are folks that have access to surface water, uh, you know, from the rivers and dams, and they paid for that infrastructure to deliver that deliver that water to their properties. And then what happened is all these other people came in and they just bought the land and and they didn't they weren't part of an irrigation. And they sunk groundwater wells. Started pumping their water, the water almond orchards, and they're they're the ones really. If you look at the pattern, when when all those farms went on, groundwater just never recovered. It used to it used to be before those other farmers moved in that if in droughts it would drop, and then on wet years it would at least stabilize, if not come up a little bit. But once all these other farms got added that were groundwater only, uh, the, it's only been downhill since then, down to the bottom. And it's it's really hard uh, because these folks, 
um, and these farms with the groundwater only have never had to pay for for pumping water any more than just you know maintaining the well and the electricity to pull it up. And now they have to pay all these charges on the water, and they're having a hard time with that. But we have to manage the groundwater. If those groundwater uh, aquifers are allowed to deplete in the Central Valley, um, then everybody loses. Everybody. So you know. you're, you're absolutely right. Ms. Kristavi, you know, you had uh, um, Max Gomberg on, who retired, who left the state uh, water Last resources week. board. Yeah, what what did you get out of, 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 of his opinion on how they were working and what was working, what was not working, what didn't they do uh, to remedy all these things, or many yeah, of these things? You, yeah, I think if you, if you try and, you know, like um, settle out uh, the defining factor of, of his session on, her, on there last week, it's just a frustrating... Uh, the frustration that he was dealing with, with the lack of action, the lack of urgency um, that he felt was intrinsic, you know, within the state government. And um, he certainly made a good case for it, right? We yeah. we haven't given the other party a chance to come and review, but yeah, uh, yeah but you know, if, if you define it down to what his base, basic message was, it was, uh, uh, it was that, lack of action um, and you know, just, just the frustration on how long it takes. Yeah. It sounds like each department wanted to be isolated from the other. And, and, uh, they, they didn't, they didn't have that camaraderie that, that, that Chris Austin's talking about that they need to work together. So, Oh yeah. The silos. We talk about that a lot. You know, do we do tend to work in water in a lot of silos in our own little worlds, even within agencies or between agencies? So yeah, you know, it's uh, that we, that's a, that's a challenge to get out and to get people to sit around and you know sit around the table and actually talk and get somewhere. Um, you know, these are tough times, no doubt. Oh. Uh, one one last thing before we gotta go to commercial break. I know there's. Uh, we talked about algae blooms that are happening, and and now I understand from reading your your stuff this morning that uh, it may cause uh, the sturgeons to go extinct in California. Oh, oh yeah, they, yeah. The the algae bloom in the Bay Area was was really bad. Uh, yeah, well, really serious, and yeah, a lot of species, uh, yeah, suffered, and uh, sturgeon. Um, I think the Green sturgeon are endangered, but not the white sturgeon. But if you have an endangered species and you suffer a, a large loss like that, it's it's bad. It's just not it's not good. Uh, the algae yeah. blooms that's going to be the big challenge moving forward. How to uh, you know how to control those? It's you know it's not going to be an easy problem to solve. Yeah, yeah. Well, a great report from you today, Chris. That was absolutely fascinating. Yes. Well, thank you. <laughs> well, I hope our listeners, you know, they can they can get the jump start on us if they uh, uh, go to mavensnotebook.com, become a subscriber, or become a sponsor. It's a great way to get all the, all the important uh, water news that's happening in the state. You 
you su- you seem to scoop it up better and faster than anybody we know, and I appreciate that because we use a lot of that for our show, and uh, we love having you on every single week, Chris. And uh, so we're going we're to go take a commercial break, but I, I personally want to tell you thank you for being part of the Water Zone show. You make it a good show, you and, and, and Chris Davey. And uh, I know the listeners really enjoy that. They uh, they pick up, they pick on it. We get comments about it all the time from people. And uh, a lot of, lot of your friends, a lot of people you know, and a lot of people who never heard of you before, uh, they say, hey, this lady knows her stuff. And as she does, <laughs> she does. So, Chris, thank you very much. And uh, we'll hope, uh, we're going to be off next week for everybody because uh, it'll be our Christmas time to stay, uh, stay with our families. But uh, they'll play some Christmas music, but we'll be back in two weeks. So stick around. Chris, thank you very much. All right. Happy holidays, everyone. Happy Happy holidays. All right, we're going to take a little break, and we'll be back with our featured guest. So stick around. We'll be right back. You're on board KCAA's Inland Talk Express. KCAA, Loma Linda, 1050 AM, the station that leaves no listener behind. Moving up in this industry means getting the most out of each day, so you can focus on growing your business. With Site One, you're in control, and we're here to help. It starts with the right team. Our irrigation pros can help map out a complete, streamlined system that meet any requirements or regulation. And from the first dig to years after install, knowledgeable experts are available in branch or resources are available online to help find solutions specific to your needs. Next, we make sure you have the right tools to get the job done with the largest selection of top brands in the industry, bringing the latest in Wi-Fi enabled controllers, rotors, sprays, valves, and drip components. And because hard work should always be rewarded, you'll receive personalized pricing and earn loyalty points on qualifying purchases to help you grow. You're in control. Site One is here to help. Water is one of the biggest expenses for communities, HOAs, universities, golf courses, and resorts. So keeping those costs under control, especially when rates are increasing while water supplies are being reduced, are often essential to a customer's survival. Managing water requires multiple skills, which is why it's been complicated and difficult until now. AquaTrack brings multiple skills and technologies together to help large system users conserve outdoor water and improve the health of their landscapes. AquaTrack's professionals are certified landscape water managers and certified landscape irrigation auditors. The company offers audit services, upgrade advice, technical expertise, and water use monitoring. We already manage irrigation water for the largest homeowner associations in Arizona, and we're prepared to bring our knowledge and experience to help others, including landscapers and designers. Give us a call and hear how AquaTrack saved one HOA some 430 million gallons of water and $200,000 in annual water expenses. AquaTrack is Arizona-based, and you can reach us at 623-594-8689. That's 623 623- Five nine four eight six eight nine. This is KCAA. All right, 
increasingly thirsty world, there is much potential in desalination, the process of removing salt from seawater. But desalination has historically posed challenges. It consumes massive amounts of expensive energy, produces a waste called brine, and raises concerns about impacts on aquatic life. So how is desalination becoming more of an option for the creation of fresh water? Here with Peter Fisk. He is director of the Water Energy Resilience Research Institute at Lawrence Berkeley Lab uh, and also executive director of the National Alliance for Water Innovation. So uh, desalination, a uh, huge yeah. topic, a lot of things to talk about here. But let's just kind of set the baseline for people. Uh, what is desalination? How does it work? Sure. Well, desalination, strictly speaking, Travis, is the process of separating salt from water that you can make pure water, drinkable water out of something that's not drinkable or not usable. Mm. And, you know, we've had desalination as a technology for thousands of years. The Phoenicians sailed across uh, the Mediterranean with pots of, uh, you know, they would actually make uh, desalination by boiling the seawater and then collecting the steam. So we've had desalination in human history for thousands of years. And it has traditionally been uh, a process of, of making steam and then condensing the steam. Mm. About 60 years ago, uh, a pair of immigrant graduate students at UCLA were working on a new process, making an ultra-thin membrane. And they were able to make a membrane that could let water go through but would hold back the salt. And so when you squeeze on that water, you create this pressure that allows fresh water to kind of be squeezed through and then the salty water remains behind. And that was called reverse osmosis. That was created in about 1960. And that is now the dominant desalination technology today. So all the major desalination plants you see around the world use thousands and thousands of square feet of these membranes. And they squeeze, they pressurize the water to high pressure and squeeze fresh water out. Um, and and uh, we at uh, the National Alliance for Water Innovation, this is the U.S. Department of Energy's five-year, $110 million research investment in desalination. We're working on advancing the technology of reverse osmosis, as well as looking at some other really exciting other ways of separating salt from water. Mm, awesome. And I think it's important to note, you know, people use this not just to pull water from the ocean, but also pulling water from aquifers, right? Like to, to right. kind of address that salinity issues there. What have, right. what have been the historic challenges for desalination? People, you know, the, the public might be like, hey, why don't we just build all these plants everywhere? And, right, and just make desalinated water out of, because we had all this ocean water, so make <laughs> desal for everybody, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. But why, why, what have been the challenges with, with the uptake, expansion, use of desalination? Yeah. Well, for starters, um, desalination 
is uh, desalinating seawater takes a lot of energy because seawater is very salty. Seawater has about three and a half percent salt in it. And just the chemical energy necessary to separate all that salt from that water just requires a lot of energy. So traditionally, one of the major concerns about desalination is that it requires a lot of energy. Now, as you pointed out, that's because most of the desalination done in the, in the world is done on ocean water, which is pretty salty. One of the key areas that we're finding is that there's a lot of other salty water around that's not nearly as salty as seawater, but we, we um, haven't been using it uh, because it's too salty. So there are other places where we can find water that might be more uh, energy efficient in terms of uh, desalination. So you mentioned groundwater. There's a, a term we call in, in, the, in the water industry called brackish groundwater. And brackish groundwater is water that is not not uh, nearly as salty as seawater, but it's definitely too salty to use. Like if you if you pumped out brackish groundwater in the Central Valley of California or in Wyoming and you started watering crops with it, you'd kill the crops mm-hmm. because there's too much salt. But it's got a lot less salt than seawater. So that's one place where, you know, uh, desalination has, has had struggles in that it's traditionally used a lot of energy for seawater. Mm-hmm. The other concern is when you make desalination, when you do desalination, of course, you create two products. You create drinking water on one side, but you make an even saltier uh, liquid on the other, and that's called brine. If you're by the ocean, it's pretty easy. You can basically take that brine and mix it with a lot of seawater, or you can mix it with wastewater from a nearby water treatment plant, and you can kind of equalize the salt, and you can get that brine back into the ocean where, it, where it's perfectly safe. When you go inland, you no longer have an ocean as an easy like disposal option. So one of the key challenges for inland brackish desalination is what do I do with all this brine that's left over? <laughs> and it can be really expensive. In some cases, some people have to literally truck, truck after truck after truck of salty water to some place where they can dispose it. And so that's always been a key challenge is what do I do with the brine? Mm. Now, um, a lot of environmental um, uh, uh, you know, organizations have always been very concerned about desalination, concerned that desalination systems sitting on the coast are going to suck in all this seawater and kill these you know, fish, and then it's going to squirt out all this brine that's going to harm the fish further. Um, and it turns out that you, know, you can actually design desalination plants by the ocean today that are absolutely safe. And so... Um, the environmental concerns are probably legacy of some past plants and how they were designed, but the current desalination technologies are actually quite safe for sea life. And, um, but it remains expensive because seawater is salty. Mm. And that, and you know, you talk about the energy involved, that's where it's a cost issue, right? It's, it's right. You, you have to pay for energy, pay for power. Uh, and so right. there's a big cost there. Um, so, uh, from my viewpoint, I feel like I've seen a lot of news about desalination changing in the past few years or progress yeah. being made, advancement maybe yeah. in mem- membranes or whatever it might be. What's been, yeah. what's been happening uh, and what's happening now to make desalination more viable? Sure. Well, well, I would say three things have been going on. First, um, the baseline desalination technology, the membranes that we have today, are just getting better and better and better. It's like Moore's law, but for membranes. Mm-hmm. Uh, membranes get uh, more inexpensive and they get higher performing. So that's that's a great trend. 
The second trend is that we see that there are um, emerging technologies that could really solve what we call the brine problem. So there are, you know, traditional technologies, as I said, for dealing with salty water was to boil it. And traditional technologies for dealing with the brine was, again, to essentially boil it. And that takes an enormous amount of energy. So getting rid of the brine um, in the past was really a, a, an economically limiting thing. Today, there's some really interesting emerging technologies. Some are using membranes. Some are using a process called electrodialysis, which is like using the same processes that your kidneys do, but instead you use electric fields to pull the ions out of the water. And then there are other interesting technologies involving um, other liquids that will pull the water molecules away from the brine. So there are some really interesting emerging technologies to make brine concentration and brine crystallization a lot cheaper. Hmm. The final really interesting trend in desalination is actually not about the water. It's about the other stuff. So um, as you know, water is the universal solvent. So there is a lot of dissolved salts and metals and even nutrients and organics in water. And if you could pull those away, some of those are enormously valuable. For example, lithium is uh, a critical material for batteries and for electric vehicles. And there is an abundance of lithium in some salty waters, both naturally occurring waters and in some wastewaters. And so it's possible that the future desalination will not just involve new technologies, but also involve making more than one product. So not just the water, but also the other chemicals that you pulled out of the water. Mm. Uh, back to the first point about the improvement of the membranes. Uh, part of the benefit there is that it reduces the energy involved in desalination and then reduces the cost, which has been one of the big barriers. That's right. That's okay. right. And, and, and the irony is, Travis, is that today's desalination plants are actually some of the most energy efficient <laughs> chemical processes known to man. I mean, literally, today's plants like the Carlsbad plant uh, in uh, San Diego County, um, it is removing all that salt from that water at very close to the thermodynamic limit of separating salt from water. The problem is it's still a lot of energy. You just have to overcome a lot of thermodynamic energy to simply move that salt away from the water. And so that's why, even though it's efficient, it still uses a lot of um, electricity. Hmm. Uh, I'm really curious to hear about uh, your what's going on both at the National Alliance for Water Innovation and then at your specific institute there at the Lawrence Berkeley Lab. You know, okay. what's kind of what's kind of that you've, you've probably got a lot of different research projects underway. But, yeah, could you talk about just the focus of your oh, yeah. work and what you all are trying to achieve? Yeah. Yeah. So so first of all, um, the the consortium that I run uh, called NAWI is the National Alliance for Water Innovation, and it's national. It is a national consortium of researchers from academia, from other national laboratories, and from industry. And what we've done is we've set out a five-year and a 10-year roadmap for radically reducing the cost and energy of desalination. And so we bring together research teams, we call forth projects, you know, we ask for project proposals in certain key areas of technology, we get hundreds of fabulous ideas. We, we sort through all those ideas for the very best ideas and the very best teams. And then we give those teams uh, funding and let them, let them rip. And they go and they start making really great progress. Um, this has not been 
a typical thing that the water industry has had access to. You know, it's, it's kind of funny, Travis, in, in the past, like in the 50s and 60s, water was a really big deal. And you had a lot of research at universities advancing water treatment technologies. And then in the 70s and 80s and 90s, we, did, we just saw the federal government really back off on its investment in advancing water treatment. And so as a result, we've got a lot of great you know, technologies today in water treatment, but these are technologies that were invented in the 60s and 70s. So we haven't seen a lot of advancement. Um, and our job is to essentially move the frontier forward. And so we are, as, I, as you know, uh, we talked about earlier, we do research on novel membranes. We do research on novel processes for uh, you know, different ways of separating salt from water. And then the third area that we're spending a lot of, of uh, investment and time on is automation and making these systems small, compact, reliable, and auto autonomous. Because you know, eventually, you know, our, a lot of our water treatment facilities today are very large systems. They're custom built. They take years and years and years to build. And in a future, we cannot rely on that like large scale system alone. We need to think about smaller scale systems that can be manufactured and deployed quickly. And so that's a real key focus of us of, of our program is how do we make water treatment and desalination that's small and in a package that can be rushed out when it's needed. Think of it almost, Travis, like um, I want to invent the water washing machine. I mm. want to have a set of technologies where you can bring in dirty water on one end, put it into the water washing machine, and then clean, clean water will, will come out the other end. Yeah, is that the is that the distributed desalination in a way? I saw that I saw that term. Uh, That's there. right. So yeah. so um, the the concept of distributed water treatment again is not new, but I think people haven't appreciated its power. As I said, that our traditional water um, infrastructure is largely centralized treatment plants, big distribution infrastructure, lots of pipes in the ground, etc. And you know, there's a lot of things that are challenging that model. For starters, that model relies on fresh water. And mm. so, for example, in California, the city of San Francisco's drinking water actually comes from the Sierra Nevada, like 150 miles away, and they bring it all this way to San Francisco, all right? Then we have these large centralized treatment plants, and then we have to push that drinking water out through thousands of miles of pipes, and then we have to gather up all this wastewater for thousands of miles of other pipes, put more energy in, and then throw it away. So it's a real shame because it turns out that, you know, as you know, Travis, water is heavy, and we live on a planet with gravity. And so if you are moving all this water around, you're using a lot of energy. If instead you had small-scale systems, an apartment building or even a house could actually receive water and reprocess it and use it in multiple different applications in the home. So it could start as drinking water. That could then be cleaned up a little bit to flush your toilets and irrigate your lawn. And so one of the concepts that we have is that in the future, we're going to have a, a hybrid system. We're going to still have centralized desalination, centralized treatment, but we're also going to have small-scale distributed systems that are continually reprocessing water locally. And when you reprocess water locally, you don't have to move it around. So you save all the energy of moving that water around. Mm. And, uh, you know, ideally the most, the most energy efficient way to move water, Travis is don't move it, you know, <laughs> use it over and over again, right where you have it. 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, one of the things we we chatted about uh, when we were uh, talking in in New Orleans uh, was about some pilot programs, kind of this effort right. you have going on, uh, little little accelerator or whatever. What's what's happening on that front? That's super exciting. So we've we've been at this for three and a half years, and so we've got a really interesting stable of of new technologies. And the step now that we're embarking on is is doing piloting uh, of some of these technologies integrated into entire water treatment systems. So our program, we just um, we had a call for proposals, and we ended up with some great concept papers, and we down selected to a group that we got full proposals for, and we're reviewing those full proposals now. And Travis, it is really interesting. We have some teams that want to build. Um, trailers, trailer-based treatment systems that you literally will roll around and go to, say, a, a wastewater treatment plant and literally flange up from the finished wastewater and produce drinking water at the other side. We have other um, piloting teams that want to work on produced water. This is water from the oil and gas production, uh, and they want to be able to pull out all the oil, all the metals and other pollutants, and then maybe even pull out a lot of the salt and allow that water to be reused or even discharged safely back to the environment. We have um, some really interesting uh, research on essentially what we call 100% water recovery or zero liquid discharge. So these are desalination technologies that literally squeeze every last drop of water out of that brine and leave behind essentially a, a dry like a Ziploc bag full of Salt. Salt. <laughs> and so those, yeah, so those technologies are really interesting because especially in the inland environments, you know, for starters, if you can squeeze out every last drop of water, first of all, the volume of waste goes down by a factor of 10. And then secondly, instead of dealing with a concentrated brine, which is corrosive, which you need like a stainless steel tanker truck to remove, Instead, you have a heap of dry salts, which you can put in a hopper truck with a tarp and safely dispose mm. of that. So the costs really, really um, drop when you can get to what we call ZLD or zero liquid discharge technology. So these are examples of systems, and they'll be trialed at small communities, um, at uh, operating facilities like greenhouses. And in the oil and gas sector, we will be well, likely piloting these actually in the oil field. Mm. So it's a very diverse group of environments to do this piloting, but that's kind of our point at Naui is that there's all this salty water lying around that nobody is able to use, and we want to be able to help people use it over and over again. Yeah, so test test these technologies and these and see what sticks, see what works, and then hopefully see that's some right. of these things get out there and be used as real-world solutions, right? That's right. Um, that's right. Couple, couple other uh, somewhat random questions, but connected to this. Uh, obviously, there's this massive water scarcity issue out out west, California, where you are, all throughout the Colorado River Basin. Aridification yeah. driven by climate change. We're not even going to call it drought, right? Let's be real about right. what's happening. Um, so, is there a big push to like scale up desalination, or like what's going on with that? that piece uh, you know in terms of what's happening out there yeah yeah well let's let's talk about california in particular so our governor gavin newsom just published a water supply action plan so there, there, it's common especially in the west you know travis for there to be a lot of like you know uh like pearl clutching and like <laughs> oh, oh, oh what are we going to do and so new, the newsom administration has said okay here's what we're going to do and they lay out all the sort of elements 
to a secure and reliable water strategy for California. So one of the key pillars of that is desalination. So the governor's plan does specify how much new desalination we're going to need in California. Hmm. Um, it also specifies a lot of other stuff besides desalination. Like, for example, we could do a much better job of capturing the stormwater that comes in our rainfall in California and let slow it down, let it soak into the ground and recharge our aquifers. That's a big, you know, part of the plan. Um, and then there's just general areas of water conservation and water reuse. As I said before, we throw away a lot of water in America. And desalination is one of those tools that allows you to reuse that water over and over again. So all those are kind of are, are pillars in, in California's strategy. And other you know, water stress states have different strategies. Some are I would say more um, uh, thought out than others. So, mm. for example, um, in Arizona, back in January, the governor of Arizona proposed that they were going to build a desal plant at the Sea of Cortez and then pipe that water up and over the mountains and bring it all the way into Phoenix. Mm. Well, it's, it sounded good, um, but if you look at the energy associated with that, it's not just the energy of the desalination but it would actually take four times as much energy as the desalination step simply to move that water up and over the mountains into city of Phoenix. And, and that's the sad thing is that sometimes politicians like to talk about desalination as a silver bullet, like, oh, mm. we just need to build a big desal plant. The fact is that water is heavy and you're not going to be able to efficiently move it from the coast where it is very far inland. And so rather than kind of have this fantasy that you're going to build these big water factories on the coast, think more about distributed reuse and make water where you have it and reuse it as much as possible. Yeah, love it. Uh, I'm also curious, desalination is huge in the mid, throughout the Middle East, right, where they are in the desert. A dominant yeah. Dominant water supply. Dominant water supply. How much do you all, you know, Department of Energy, your different labs, uh, the universities, kind of collaborate, coordinate, learn from, you know, partner with, uh, you know, companies, institutions, countries in that part of the world? So, so our major uh, international collaborators have typically been Singapore, Australia, and Israel. And uh, as you probably know, Israel, uh, more than 60% of its total water supply comes from desalination. Um, and in the Middle East, there are some very, very large desalination facilities and even plans for bigging, making even bigger desalination facilities. But we're just working on some of those relationships now. Um, and so we hope to both be able to, to learn from the scale up of some of these large facilities in the Middle East, as well as to contribute um, innovations that help them lower the cost and energy of desalination because it's in everybody's interest to have desalination be as economical and cost efficient and low carbon as possible. Mm. And ideally, you know, desalination would be entirely run with renewable energy and so would be carbon neutral. Yeah. Last last thing is uh, I need your advice a little bit here. My uh, my eleven year old sixth grader came home a couple weeks ago and announced for the science fair that he wanted to do a solar desalination experiment. Wonderful um, project. Yeah. And so I did a little googling and I found pretty simple setup like a big clear container, 
saran wrap almost on the top, a little yeah. tube going to another container yeah. and put it out in the sun. And, you know, we have, we have the ocean right here, put some salt water yeah. in there and see what happens basically. Will that, yeah. will that work? Yeah. It's called a solar still. Okay. Like distillation. So a solar still. And they're great projects. It's a perfect middle school or high school science project. Okay. Uh, for middle school students, just being able to show how much water you can produce as a function of sunlight is a very interesting experiment. Hmm. When you get into high school, some of the things students might be interested in is analyzing the salts. So after you have dried out the, the salt, you end up with this crust of, of salt. You can actually take... Um, you can take that salt on the end of a burning stick and go to your stove. <laughs> watching, yes. And you can put the salt into the flame and you can actually see different colors. And that gives, that gives high school students the idea that, you know, you can analyze for chemicals by looking at the light that they emit when, when they're um, excited with flame. Wow. So that's a nice, yeah. So you, so you could see the yellow of sodium and, you know, uh, do you know, um, Travis, the, the, um, the fire sprinkles that you can buy right. because it's time to have different colors. Those are different salts. So potassium, potassium chloride makes a nice red color and strontium, I guess maybe strontium makes a red color. Anyway, so the different elements can be visible with the flame. It's called hmm. flame photometry. Well, and I thought it can be a nice way for kids to, to learn about that. I was always worried that those little packs for like campfires and stuff were just like full of crazy chemicals, but that's interesting that it's, you yeah, know, I would actually say, yeah, it includes copper. That's the green is the copper. So okay. no, we, okay. we probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> um, so the, the wrinkle that I think we were talking about trying was to make like three of these little, little setups and, mm -hmm. uh, put like all black under one and all white under another and see if that, you know, with the sunlight and stuff, how that might affect the, you know, the desalination, the absorption, the absorption of light and the rate at which you could, uh, you could, uh, desalinate. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Cool. Idea. Well, maybe he'll be coming, uh, asking for an internship there at the, at the Lawrence Berkeley lab in, in another seven go. or eight years. So yeah. Peter, awesome stuff. Thank you for, uh, so much good information about desal. Look forward to following these pilots and seeing the cool stuff. Well, that was a great uh, interview. Uh, we're going to get more of that, uh, in the next couple of weeks. This is a lot of new technology. So all our listeners, thanks for joining us. Don't forget, we'll be off on next week, but in two weeks, we'll be back right after the first. So thank you very much. And remember, the most important thing to do is help keep our planet keep blue. Planet blue. Good night, everybody. Merry Christmas. KCAA Loma Linda. The Legacy KCAA 1050 AM and Express 106.5 FM.